This is the Interchange Recharged. I'm David Bam Miller. A multi-day blackout during a heat wave. How bad would it be? According to a recent report in the New York Times, very. Half of Phoenix in the emergency room level bad. Several other major cities in the U.S. face the same risk. The study, conducted by the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology, emphasized the need for reliable energy storage. It's one of the biggest challenges in achieving a clean, decarbonized grid, maintaining consistent, long-duration storage. Technology is advancing rapidly. Today's batteries are improving from 2 to 4 hours of life to 8 to 10. We're heading towards the milestone of 100 hours, but the reality is the climate has a different sense of time. Extreme weather will create outages and capacity shortages that last longer than we can cope with. So how can we mitigate this risk? Today, we look at the technology that could take our long-duration storage from hours to days and strengthen our protection against wild weather. Dr. Shannon Miller is CEO of Mainspring Energy. She holds a PhD in mechanical engineering from Stanford, and it was during her study in the thermodynamics lab that she co-developed the Mainspring Linear Generator. At Mainspring, we build an entirely new type of power generator that's really helping to drive the transition to a net zero carbon grid. So we build something called a linear generator, and you can think about it as an extremely flexible generator. Mainspring has raised more than $530 million in funding from clean tech investors. Something that jumps into my mind quite often is the gaps that are left behind if we don't have the sperm power and if we don't have long duration storage. And when I say long, I don't mean a few days. I mean weeks. I mean seasonal. I mean months. I mean long periods of time. That's Dr. Melissa Lott. She's director of research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. She also hosts the Clean Tech Energy podcast, The Big Switch. So check it out after this episode if you haven't heard it yet. On the show today, we look at the definition of long duration storage, how we calculate capacity, improve duration, and increase flexibility has life-changing consequences. We need to get it right. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Melissa, welcome. Hi, David. Great to be here. Looking forward to this. So Shannon, I'll start off with you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Mainspring Energy, what you guys do, how you got started. So we build something called a linear generator. So we can use a variety of fuels, anything from natural gas today, but also hydrogen, ammonia, biogas. We can ramp up our power up and down. So it's called dispatchability. Ramp up to quickly firm solar and wind, provide resiliency to the grid. And then we're also modular and scalable which means that we can support customers at the distribution level or you know, utilities at the grid side level. And so what areas is this most applicable to uh, as it relates to the energy transition? Yeah, so we install at the distribution level with commercial and industrial businesses that are looking to add resiliency, control costs, but also don't want to have a stranded asset. They're really focused on sustainability. They want to be able to use things like biogas, hydrogen, ammonia, clean fuels to be able to provide that resiliency firm their solar uh, or wind power and make sure that they eventually can get to to net zero carbon. Yeah, so it's interesting, Shannon. I know we've talked about the technology, nerded out on it a bit and really dove into what it can play in terms of different roles in an energy transition and particularly getting power, but also industry down to net zero. And tell me if I'm missing nuance in this, but when I think of this technology, it falls into, when we talk about the different buckets of things we need to get to net zero and power is an example. So we're talking about variable renewables, super cheap, 
when they're around is awesome. Got to complement them with energy storage, um, which we can talk about batteries plus fuels plus a lot of other stuff, and we'll get into that. But then it's the really the flexible, firm dispatchable power. So it's around 24-7, 365. It can ramp up and down. It can fill in long-term gaps in your system. And that's where I know the other day when we were chatting through it, this really seemed to fall into that part of the equation between storage, the longer-term storage pieces, and also firm power. Am I losing anything there, or does that capture it pretty well? No, you've captured it really well. And that's you know one of the things that is tricky is that we're both doing clean firm power and long duration energy storage and that's not something people people usually separate those into two different buckets yeah but really and this is i think one of the things we'll talk about today is that role of clean fuels in helping to both provide energy storage and provide clean firm power. Yeah, and I know, David, when we're talking through this, something that jumps into my mind quite often is the gaps that are left behind if we don't have this firm power and if we don't have long duration storage. And when I say long, I don't mean a few days. I mean weeks. I mean seasonal. I mean months. I mean long periods of time. And what we see is if we don't have those two types of technologies, costs spike and reliability goes down or worse, both things happen. Um, but bottom line is you don't have the affordable, reliable and clean future that we're looking at trying to achieve when it comes to net zero. Yeah, And I think, Melissa, you've published a lot more on this than most. But one of the things that I think folks don't realize is that we've been getting the storage for free with fossil the fossil energy. So today's grid is 60 to 80% fossil fuels, and that's providing the energy, but it's also providing storage because fossil fuels are inherently storing energy for very low cost. They're very easy to move around the world for very low cost, and then we convert them into electricity when we need them. So those systems are dispatchable. And so if we replace those with solar and wind, which we need to do, um, or other forms of, of power generation, we have to remember that we also have to place replace the storage part, not just the energy part. And I think that's a part that sometimes we forget and starting to think about how to break down um, the storage component and the energy component as two different pieces and make sure that we replace the storage part as well. Yeah, the short and sweet of it that I'd say is it's about replacing every single attribute, the ones we know we have, so producing electrons, and all the ones that we've taken for granted. Like we know how to manage a coal pile. We've built out a natural gas system with storage. Um, now we got to think about all those different components, all those different attributes, and how do we replace them in a full net zero transition? Yeah, I mean, it's not just about battery storage, uh, right? I mean, people tend to think storage is long duration batteries, but there's various types of storage, which this helps accommodate because when I first started this podcast, I talked to people about long duration storage. There's there's different definitions, right? So I said, well, what do you consider long duration storage? Said, well, 12 to 18 hours. That to me was not long duration storage. And so in order to get to net zero, to have the resiliency, Shannon, that you're referring to, there's it's going to be a combination of various things. And so having a generator that can use various types of, of clean fuel to supplement maybe some of the batteries, because we're, let's face it, we're not there on a technology standpoint for batteries. And who knows when we're going to be there. So it's going to accommodate a bunch of different things to help get to where we need to be. 100%. I was having some flashbacks <laughs> this summer because it was 10 years ago that I was leading the International Energy Agency's Energy Storage Program as part of their Technology Roadmap Series. And we were talking about electricity storage and thermal storage. But within that, we had storage technologies that provided bursts of things for seconds or maybe minutes, things that could provide, you know, a certain amount of electricity over hours, you know, at a certain power, et cetera, et cetera. And then we had the things that we were talking about, okay, how do we 
store things as heat or store things as electricity or store things as fuels so that we can bridge seasons. So it's like seconds, you know, subseconds, minutes, hours, days, but then seasons and years. I mean, these are varying different scales. When I talk long duration, um, it's, again, way beyond a number of days. It's into weeks, months, seasons. That's what I'm really thinking through. To the point that Shannon made, you dig up coal and you have a coal pile and it will sit there and wait for you until you need it. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, one of the other things that really uh, struck me is that in many parts of the world, you know, if you're not at the equator, the seasonal difference in solar is very, very large. You have three times more solar in the summer than you do in the winter. And so as you think about um, building out the infrastructure for that, you want to take advantage of that difference and not just overbuild your solar in the winter to accommodate that delta in the resource. And so the ability to seasonally store things is going to be really important to not have to overbuild the infrastructure. Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about, and Shannon, you and I were, were speaking about it earlier, and to mostly to your point, I'm here in Houston, and so we've got hurricanes. And so as part of the energy transition, I've always wondered that we have more and more generators being added to homes because we could be without power for days, if not weeks, on severe storms. But all those run on on gas. And so it's how do you accommodate that uh, type of event and be uh, energy efficient, clean energy, all that in that type of scenario? And so this is something that not only allows for the storage for that to turn on on a rainy day or a hurricane day, uh, but you can be environmentally conscious and have what you need in case of those emergencies, particularly as we're focused on it down here in Houston. So Melissa, let me ask you, what are your thoughts just overall on the current state of the energy storage market? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, there's there's various pieces to it. There's battery, which we're still trying to develop, and there's different technologies. We, we were talking to the DOE on an episode not too long ago. They're actually tracking about 120 different technologies as it relates to storage. So there's just a tremendous amount out there. But how do you think the advancement and the development is and are solutions coming fast enough or do we need to find creative solutions such as Mainspring to help supplement as we're continuing to drive to those 2035, 2050 goals? I think there's a bunch of different pieces within that. And as Shannon said, Mainspring to me falls into a couple different categories. And so it's it's an interesting one. Um, but putting that aside just for a minute, when it comes to storage our headlines and a lot of our attentions are focused on batteries. They're actually focused on maybe just a couple types of batteries, whether it's lithium ion. That's one that if I speak in general circles, there's a lot of attention to that, kind of like an awareness of what is going on there. Um, but if you're talking about iron air, if you're going into form, I know there was a ton of headlines about advancements in that technology. Um, and there's a few different pieces, but bottom line is when I look at what is in the common kind of maybe still slightly energy nerdy, but just in the in the headlines, it's really about batteries. And when I look at the actual technology behind that to the point around what DOE is tracking, there are some interesting things coming up when it comes to both storing electricity and also storing heat for different applications. And so some of the most exciting technologies I'm seeing come out um, are around how do we store heat, um, really, really hot stuff for industrial applications that we can also then supplement with a little bit of fuel to get it up to a certain temperature. And then this whole idea of the pathways to taking some kind of input and converting it to a fuel that will sit there and wait for you to be able to be used whenever you need it. And that's where I think some of the work that Shannon does comes in. The other piece that she said really quickly that I want to focus in on when it comes to storage and the whole host of technologies that I'm finding really interesting these days is this idea of fuel flexibility. So we can't 
just use one thing. We can use many things that we might have on hand at different times of the year or at different geographies with a similar technology. I, I draw the parallel to what we're already doing today, like in the Northeast. What's the winter backup plan? If something happens with gas, we got some oil on site. We can start using it. Okay, in a net zero world, that's not going to probably work out because the numbers don't pencil in terms of putting carbon capture on those things or some kind of carbon recovery, carbon products, whatever carbon tech, um, carbon management process you want to talk through. But the flexibility gives us reliability and resilience in the face of something going wrong because at the end of the day, we can plan our systems and we can do everything we can to keep them as reliable as possible and something goes wrong. As you said, David, in Houston, sometimes a really big storm parks itself over your city for a couple days. That's not something we're investing in to be completely reliable in the face of. So how do we make sure the whole system can, if it does go down, get back up quickly and that we have just lots of options? We're not stuck with one fuel. Yeah, I think that different parts of the world are really going to have different resources. You know, you can see it today. There's parts of the world that have a lot of hydropower, and those areas are going to continue to use hydropower. It's a fantastic way to store energy, but there's many parts of the world that just don't have that resource, and so you need other options. So the other, you know, interesting piece about fuel is that you can move move it more easily. Um, and it obviously, again, depends on the type of fuel. But when you're looking at, I mean, we talk to a lot of folks in Asia, and there's a lot of islands where if you don't have the solar and wind resources available, you need to be able to import a net zero carbon power energy source. And that's very hard to do with, with electrical lines. And so having the ability to move a fuel in uh, and store it until it's needed, I think is going to be really important in certain parts of the world. And just one piece on this, I will say, even if you zone in on the United States, where we have really advanced you know, energy infrastructure compared to huge parts of the world. So we have pipelines and wires. There's a paper I wrote a few years ago with a woman, Kirsten Smith, and then Erin Blanton. And we talked about how we can use existing pipeline infrastructure, so the stuff that's already built, to actually accelerate the energy transition. And to this point we're talking about, when you talk about storage, it's saying mm, we might think about a battery, but there are other ways to move molecules around that still, you know, are every bit is good when it comes to a net zero world. But because we have existing infrastructure here in the United States and, and in a large part of the world, we can use that to accelerate our progress and get emissions down faster than if we just focus on purely moving electrons over wires. Yeah, Melissa, actually on that point, it's a good it's a good question because I've I've heard differing opinions on the using the existing infrastructure. Like let's take hydrogen, for example. And a question I had raised before was okay, can you somehow use the existing natural gas pipelines to use hydrogen. And, and I've, I've asked the same question. I've, I've literally gotten two different answers. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, all the evidence that we see so far shows that you do not want to put hydrogen in some of our oldest um, cast iron pipes. You aren't, you aren't going to do that. You get embrittlement right away. It's problematic. Those pipes are older and need to be replaced anyway. But if you back up a minute and you say, let's go with a modern pipe network, right now the studies have shown that we can at least blend hydrogen in maybe up to the 20 to 30 percent level. Um, and some other pipes, we may have to line them. We may have to coat them with something so that the gas is not actually making contact with the pipes. That, of course, all goes into your cost equations about how much it costs you to get there. But if we are really serious about moving towards a net zero world, what I don't think you'll find 
very different in terms of what people say is that there is a potential role for not just wires, but also pipelines to play a role in all of this to help us store zero carbon gases over seasons, to help us move things around to provide reliability and resiliency. And bottom line is to provide practical pathways forward, potentially, in this whole transition. What I'll say is the reason we even wrote this paper, David, was because we found and I found that in these conversations I was having, the real difference in opinions I saw very often was this ability to say, you know what, if it's a wire and we're changing the electrons from brown to green, it's okay, or brown to insert your colors of the rainbow that we associate with different generation technologies here. And it's okay, the wires are clean now, so it's fine. And the question I was saying is, well, what happens if we start moving zero carbon things through a pipeline infrastructure? And this could mean gases. It could also mean repurposing existing right-of-ways. Instead of permitting a completely different place, you actually use that right-of-way for a different purpose. It could be running a wire. The point is rethinking all of our existing infrastructure. Instead of believing that you know we don't have a blank slate, but somehow we're going to s- pretend for a moment that we do, Like that's just not a really practical conversation moving forward in terms of accelerated action to get to net zero. At least that was the theory going into the paper and the numbers penciled out that there was a potential opportunity there that in my home state of Texas might be more palatable in some cases than another place in this country or in this world. Um, But it's worth a conversation, if nothing else, if we're talking about getting to net zero as quickly as possible to protect human health. Does that make sense how I'm like describing like how we approach the research and how we were thinking through it at the time? Yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. Because it's it's looking at existing infrastructure, I think, to be able to accommodate the energy transition. And there's various ways you can do it is, is basically your answer. And it's something that you need to look at, calculate, but it's not a, an absolutely not. So you've got these different types of fuels that are advancing. But then when it comes to power generation, I mean, you need to have that flexibility. And so I think, Shannon, that's probably one of the things you were looking at as you as you move forward with mainspring was this flexibility to really accommodate and be a linchpin between the different technologies as they develop yeah we we also you just put in uh, additional fuel of ammonia is another one that we're looking at which we think is really compelling in certain cases where you do want to store things for long periods of time uh it it stores you know it's more energy dense than hydrogen it's more easy to move than hydrogen uh and you can make it from green hydrogen. And so you can have a clean uh, clean fuel that you can move around. If you're looking at shipping, it's a really compelling option for different applications. And I think the ability to use the ammonia directly versus having to convert it back into hydrogen makes it even more compelling because the cost of the energy cost of going from ammonia back to hydrogen is quite high. You end up using a large fraction of the energy in the system and it just reduces your overall efficiency. But if you can use the ammonia directly, it's really compelling. Um, And we already have huge infrastructure across the world to make ammonia because it's used in fertilizer. uh, And we store it already in large quantities. You know, one of the things that I found incredibly compelling was that the existing ammonia infrastructure that we have today, obviously we use it for fertilizer, so you can't do this. But if you were to use that existing infrastructure, you'd have enough storage for three and a half days of power for the entire U.S., which not the other storage applications that we're looking at contemplate, you know, three and a half days of 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 energy uh, storage for for the U.S. And so I think just looking at the scale of the infrastructure that we already have is really compelling. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was talking to my Australian colleagues on a project we're working on together, and one of them said, "Oh, I got to get it right. 
horses for courses. Like you want a different horse when you're running, you know, a quarter mile sprint versus a couple mile, you know, steeplechase or something. So it's the idea of, okay, if I have a, a horse that can actually do pretty well on a lot of them, that's pretty valuable to add into my stable. So to the question you're asking, David, and what we've been talking through, how do I have as many tools in my toolbox as possible so that I can weather different storms, literally and figuratively, and have different options. Because on the technical side of things, we know how to create hydrogen. We know how to create ammonia. We know how to store these things. We know how to create a whole host of fuels. And there's cost considerations that we're still working on that will continue to change as the technology improves and also as the entire energy system evolves. And we have different amounts of, shall we say, um, excess electricity in different pieces of this. And this is a piece I wrote with Julio Friedman, oh goodness, years ago, uh, four years ago at this point. But Within all of it, the bottom line is how do we develop things that are both technologically feasible but also acceptable to communities? So you've got to have resources. You want to have hydro, you got to have water. That's just practical. And then you have to have a community that is saying we are okay with having run of river, dams, pumped hydro, insert different technologies here. And there are different priorities and restrictions that come when you insert those non-technical barriers as well. And all it boils down to for me is having a host of different technologies that then when we're picking those attributes, a community can say, you know what, the combination that gets us to the attributes we need that we're okay with the community is this. Insert the different pieces there to give you the whole pie you need with the different pieces. Yeah, and I mean, like Shannon said, it's what's right for certain geographies may not be right for others. And you see what's going on on a global scale with the energy transition. And sometimes you look and say, oh, well, we need to emulate that. And that just may not be feasible based on on various uh, factors for that geography. So being able to have a global economy that can be flexible on certain products and certain generating technologies that's suitable for various geographic locations is obviously extremely helpful. And I think that that's another piece that is maybe overlooked or just not focused on yet, but it's something that's going to be critical for long-term uh, net zero. So Shannon, what what are some of the challenges that that you've seen as it relates to energy storage, I mean, besides the obvious and and the timing, the duration, supply chain issues, various compositions, um, what other things that may be lesser known that are challenges that you're seeing in the market? Yeah, I mean, just cost is obviously the number one thing. None of none of the clean fuels infrastructure is at scale, and so it's not competitive with fossil fuels. And so, you know, it needs to hit larger scale before that's going to happen. And the IRA and and a number of the incentives out there are, are helping to drive that. So that's, you know, obviously the top barrier. So I just need to give a nod to that at least. I think the other places that that we're seeing issues is I think I mentioned earlier, you know, because we get the storage for free now, a lot of the markets, you know, there are capacity markets in different, you know, ISOs, but they're not, it's not necessarily consistent and it's not necessarily nobody's sure how to value the storage and the capacity. And so that's something that's going to continue to evolve as we continue to separate storage from generation and realize that we need to have those capacity. We need to pay for that resilience. And I think, you know, today we, we like I said, we get it for free with some of those existing coal and gas infrastructure facilities, and we need to make sure that we have it when we shut those down. I think the other thing that we see is a number of different policies continue to evolve. And sometimes when States are looking for storage and and putting mandates in for storage. They'll specify that they want electrochemical or thermal storage rather than making it more open to assume that you can allow clean fuels or other types of storage. Uh, and so I think as we continue to 
incentivize the need to have those that capacity. We need to make sure that it's technology neutral and not just picking a specific type of storage uh, that we want to put on the grid. Um, so I think those are all areas where we're going to continue to evolve, continue to have good conversations. And I do see that happening. And I think there's a lot more real, you know, a lot of realization that, like you guys said earlier, that it's not just lithium ion batteries is the only solution for storage on the grid scale. And I will say just around this whole conversation, I think it is maturing faster than we might have thought it would um, after the Inflation Reduction Act, which really called out the source of the materials and all of the steps in supply chains that actually end up producing the end result of what we're talking about. And so there's been um, a revived interest in, okay, what are the material requirements for what we're talking about? Where do they come from today? Where the, could they come from in the future? And what can we actually do to diversify the types of materials that we need and the places they come from as we move forward? In just a practical matter, there's the geopolitics of all of it, but also just from a practical matter, if it takes 14, 15, 16 years to permit a mine, okay, how quickly can we actually ramp up the production of lithium and cobalt and copper when we're talking about electrifying an economy? And so this goes back to the having a lot of different technologies, pulling on a lot of different streams, making it possible to accelerate the overall transition. Also, I'll just flag real quick. If you guys haven't watched it, I thought it was a good summary that um, the Department of Energy put out with Jigger Shah. He did that video on how the Inflation Reduction Act is affecting the loan programs office and what different types of technologies they're investing in to what scale. And just the amount of money and the amount of things that are being invested in is absolutely incredible. I'm sure lots of listeners have like looked into those numbers. But if you haven't, it's a great place to start diving in if you just want a summary of what's being invested in and how across the federal government. Well, everybody I've talked to in the industry has said that the IRA clearly had a positive impact uh, on their business and the energy transition. It, my my view is there still needs to be more. I think it was a it was an excellent first step. But Melissa, curious on your thoughts, what else would you like to see from a regulatory standpoint that could really help advance this? I mean, like Shannon said, there's there's some things where there's a very narrow focus on the types that are going to get tax incentives for certain things that probably needs to be broadened out given the flexibility discussion that we earlier had, but what other areas would you like to see maybe next as, you know, kind of IRA, maybe number two, as, as we further go down the, the path? Oh my goodness. So the first thought I have is I think what is on everyone's mind, which is actually the processes we need to be able to deploy the capital that the IRA could deploy. So how do we get things built? And this is not just about uh, NEPA, no offense, uh, but it's about a lot more than that when it comes to regulations at the federal and state level, making sure that also our markets can pay for things effectively. We have an entire initiative at the Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with um, Johns Hopkins called the Future Power Markets Forum. And it's understanding, okay, we design power markets for the past. We need them to work for the future. So where are the gaps and how do we get that done? So I am an engineer and I can definitely go down the technology pathways, but in terms of additional policy and regulatory action, it's figuring out all those things that allow us to deploy this money as we then fill in some of the gaps that were left with the IRA. Yeah. I think the financing aspect is a big piece that we've talked about another times. Um, I was talking to a, a very senior banker at a large bulge racket bank and he was talking about the challenges that they have deploying some of the capital they have reserved for energy transition type technologies. And the challenge is they're, they're regulated banks and they have certain guidelines to deploy that capital that they have to meet and reserve requirements that they have. And the regulators come in and say, well, this company is not making cash flow. You can't invest or you've got to reserve a tremendous amount of capital and makes it unprofitable for them. And so they've got a big conflict of interest in terms of Hey, we want to lend to this industry, 
But then the other side of the government that regulates them says, okay, you can maybe in small amounts, but we're going to penalize you significantly for doing so. And so sometimes it's almost like the right hand isn't talking to the left, and there needs to be some type of incentive to put the riskier capital at work, but then for normal investors, shareholders, you name it, have somewhat of a safety net uh, to help accommodate and encourage it a little bit more. Yeah, I'll flag three quick things. Shannon, you hit the nail on the head with the whole, it's, it's all around risk preview, David, around what you were just saying, the word risk. So Shannon, you highlighted the risks around technology development, getting these deployed, getting things scaled. So we learn as we go and we scale up to the, what we're talking about when we talk about a full energy transition. The scale is massive. The other pieces of risk are saying, okay, when will we have clarity on how, if, when, how much we can actually include the risks of investing in non-climate resilient infrastructure? We can actually take into account the risks of the changing climate that we have going on here. And also the risks as policies continue to develop and as social pressures increase of investing in carbon intensive pieces of this equation. The third thing that I will say that gets highlighted to me time and time again when I talk about these really big banks is they're saying we need to deploy capital at scale and we cannot spread our people across small projects. They need to be huge. And so there's a tension there if we're trying to get these kind of like first, second, first, 10, first hundred things um, built of new technologies. And the whole idea of I'm not moving $10 million. Talk to me when it's billions. Talk to me when it's pushing a trillion. You know, these types of things. These are just very different scales of conversations that we're having. Yeah, that, that's right. Because, you know, when I mentioned that to the to the banker, he said, David, he said, you just described my daily problem on doing it. But then also the challenge to your point, Melissa, is, well, until they ha- can minimally deploy 200 to 250 million, that they're not even going to engage in that discussion. And so what happens at the, at the lower scales, there's a really dearth of, not, I wouldn't say capital availability, but almost willingness to deploy in that, in that space just because of various reasons. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the DOE, just on battery technologies alone, they were tracking uh, 120 different technologies. Look, everybody wants to pick the winner. Right, but when you have so much to choose from that's at an early stage, they all run a SWOT analysis, and it just it just doesn't add up. Um, and so that's that's part of the challenge. And and Shannon, curious how how has the financing been uh, for Mainspring? Where have you found the capital? How has the reception been? And just even looking forward to the availability for your growth. You know, when you look at the cost of capital because of the risk of new technology, the cost of capital is often higher which just adds to the fact that these new technologies aren't at scale and the cost of capital is higher. And so now you have a, multiple reasons why you're not as competitive as existing as the incumbent technologies and the incumbent fossil infrastructure. So the benefit of things like the IRA has given uh, enough confidence for investors in the market that the markets will be there. And that has helped drive private investment. And so I think that's helped just in terms of the number of private firms and private funds that are out there that are investing in clean energy has gone up because of that. And I think that's really been um, helpful for companies like ours to have more access to capital through those funds. So that's one area um, where those government incentives have really helped, I think. And then the other place is that we've found partnerships with, with energy companies. So we have a partnership with Nextera, who has helped provide our project finance. And that's been it's really important to have someone that understands the energy space that could come out, really look at our technology, understand that it worked, felt comfortable owning those assets and and deploying those assets and then helping us start to scale our business. So I think having uh, partners that are 
in the energy space that know how to build projects has been really valuable for us. So we've we've looked for those strategic partners in addition to more uh, traditional financial partners. Yeah, I mean the the rising rate environment has has really you know hurt this. It hasn't come at a great time because banks are obviously funding themselves in a higher rate environment. They've got to pay more money on their deposits, which means um, the borrowers are, are the ones that ultimately are paying the price on it. And at some point, it just becomes uneconomical or, or just too expensive to pursue any growth plans that you have at that time, which again gets back to to government incentives. So it's, it's a little bit of a circle where everything kind of needs to be operating together to really make this thing work. And I think more so than maybe two years ago, uh, there's more alignment on those areas. Uh, I mean, if you go back even five years, I think it was so disparate that everybody was doing their own thing until they realized that it needs to come together with one cohesive strategy. And I'm, I, since I started this podcast about two years ago, it just seems like that is becoming more aligned. Obviously, a long way to go, but at least it's moving in the right direction. I'm curious, Melissa, what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I think the shift in the conversation, so I've been doing this about 20 years, and the shift in the conversation is notable. It's moved away from, we've got a couple of things that can fix it all, to a, okay, we need all of the above at the table. And that actually includes also making sure we keep the lights on as we transition, because we're not going to, as an economy, bear the weight of having unreliable energy as we transition as quickly as possible. So, you know, balancing that is tough. Um, I can't remember the first time I heard the silver bullet and the silver buckshot, but it had to be a decade or plus more now. So I think we've moved more towards a buckshot conversation where it's a lot of different things all going towards the same problem. What I will say, David, that in addition to the evolution of the conversation being one or two favorite technologies and um, Ed Crooks over on the Energy Gang, oh, how did he say it the other day? It was like singular solutionitis, but he said it more eloquently than that. There still is some of that. Oh, we just do this and it'll all be fine. We just do that. That still comes up. It still comes up a lot, but less than when I started this. The other thing that's really been clarified, though, is what the target is. When I started, it was talking about 50% reductions and 80% reductions. Now it's net zero. That's the target, and the question is by when. And what technologies are going to play in that? You know, it's a function, it's that circular discussion. You know, okay, by when? Okay, what technologies are available? When do we need to deploy them? When will different things be available? How does that look like if you're in a wealthy, highly developed country or an emerging economy? Dot, 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 dot. But we really have focused in on the end goal being net zero, as opposed to getting in this debate of if it's 50 or 70 or 80, by when and how. Um, that's been a big change in the conversation. It's Ed's accent, but he sounds so eloquent. That's why. He does. He just like pulls out these words. I'm like, how do you know that? And he says it so smoothly. So Toby, please cut that. But um, it's no, keep true. It in. Keep it's it totally in. true. No. Ed, I hope you're not listening. Or maybe I hope you're listening. I hope it'll make you laugh. <laughs> like, but it's true. The idea of we still do see these things pop up. Oh, I'll fix this tomorrow with insert your favorite technology here. And what we know from the research, and you can go across all the different studies, we published a summary of all these different studies. If you take any piece of the energy transition, I'll focus in on power because we've been talking a lot about that. You don't see one single technology 
getting you to an affordable, reliable, and clean future. You see a bunch of different attributes that aren't going to be all supplied by one thing if you want to have all three of those things, affordability, reliability, and clean energy. And so that is something that I think the modeling and the research and the numbers have gotten just stronger over time on. Um, We debate about exactly how much firm power you might need. But there seems to be this budding consensus around it's probably at least as much as we have today in the United States. We may use it differently, um, but that capacity number, it's probably about the same or at least in that kind of order of magnitude, that band of uncertainty there. Um, there's trade-offs having more or less, but it's probably not much less than we have today. And there's a number of different technology softwares being developed that can help from an energy management standpoint. Uh, So it just goes to another piece of this long energy transition chain that, to your point, Melissa, it's right. A lot of people think energy transition, oh, I'm just going to have a a solar panel on my roof and that's it. But what happens when it's a rainy day? And it's it's evolved so much beyond that that we've talked a couple times on this podcast about just the education and getting that knowledge out there about what truly is happening, what the technologies are that are available. And it's, it's a bunch of different ones. Ultimately, in, in 50 years, wherever we are as it relates to, to our net zero targets, it's going to be a big combination of the different technologies. And I'm, I'm curious, Shannon, what, what other technologies are you aware of out there that may be in, in development stage, deployment stage, that you think are really maybe additive uh, to mainspring and what you're trying to, to accomplish? Well, the, the clean fuel infrastructure is something we don't you know, we don't build. So I think there's a, you know, I talk to a lot of companies that are building ways to produce green hydrogen, for instance, that are absolutely critical for our, you know, ability to transition to to zero carbon. So having, you know, hydrogen is one of the building blocks to to both, you know, de- decarbonizing fertilizer, decarbonizing a lot of industry, and then, you know, some portion of it is going to go into power. Uh, some of portion, I think, will go to ammonia for power. And so, all of that infrastructure needs to get built and is a huge, huge part of what needs to happen in order to get our full infrastructure over uh, to zero carbon. So uh, I see a lot of companies focused on making uh, making hydrogen, a lot of companies focused on thinking about how to make ammonia, green ammonia for that. And then, you know, there's a lot also looking at sustainable aviation fuel with hydrogen as a building block um, and a lot of other clean fuels that come straight from there. So I think that infrastructure is a huge part of it. Uh, and then the storage of, uh, you know, hydrogen storage is not easy. That's what ammonia storage is much easier. So things like that uh, are also critical. Shannon, we've talked about kind of a, a lot of different things today. And given the complicated nature and how we're talking about the flexibility, the different pieces, the technological development, what are your thoughts on 2050. Uh, do you think that we're on track? Do you think that we're a little bit behind and we're going to probably need to have a hockey stick go in terms of our technological development deployment of new energies? It's hard to gauge. You know, the the infrastructure, and I think about this a lot, the, the infrastructure that we have is so vast that it's sometimes hard to comprehend what it means to replace today's grid is still 60 to 80% fossil in, in most parts of the world. And so, you know, what does it take to rebuild all of that it's daunting, but at the same time, you know, a lot of it has been built in the last, you know, 50 years. And so as we start to think about, you know, once technologies are really well understood and really we've done it before, uh, where we scaled those technologies up to the larger scale. So I do have a lot of optimism that we'll be able to hit, hit our targets and continue to scale 
all of these different solutions in different parts of the world. Melissa, how about you? What are, what are your thoughts about our, our progress thus far? I think that in some ways we are much further ahead than I and many of us thought we would be at this time in this place. Um, I know certainly when I was doing my first modeling runs a good number of years ago, we were projecting much higher emissions levels for the United States, for the world. We were looking at much higher degrees of climate change um, and all the impacts that come from that, the impacts on energy use, the impacts on health. Um, the numbers were much more stark. So we have made progress. When I think about 2050, I get asked the question so often of, is the U.S. going to make it? And I find that question really interesting because, one, it implies that it's a binary between if we get to net zero by 2050 or if we don't, we've lost or we've won. And it's kind of like actually every step we get closer to it means healthier communities, um, healthier people all across the country. At least that's what the evidence says when we – all the stuff that we publish in the Lancet Medical Journal every year, it's, it's very clear that progress matters. It's not a binary on-off. You make it or you don't. Um, but the other piece of it is – just how many things we still need to figure out in order to get close or get all the way to net zero by 2050. The Inflation Reduction Act was absolutely transformative, yes, but it doesn't unstick all the different pieces. And to what I was talking about earlier, David, I think so much about how we actually build all the stuff we need. If you want to get an idea of the scale of this challenge, don't get, you know, right next to the power lines, but go look at a transmission line up close and, you know, bring your neck back and look up into the sky. It's huge. Go to one single coal-fired power plant, natural gas-fired power plant. These things are absolutely massive. And you think about how much we have to build, how quickly. It's just, it's a big scale. And we haven't unstuck everything we need to unstick to achieve it. One thing that I'm curious, if I can ask a quick question, Shannon, of you is, I mean, you are getting steel in the ground. That's what you're working towards. If I'm just going to sum it up, like actually getting things built, how do we get these things in place so they can start teaching us what they're able to do? We can start learning from them and we can start figuring out how to actually scale. If we want to actually achieve the scale that I'm talking about and the scale that you mentioned, in your experience and your observations, what are the biggest barriers? Is it the financing we spoke about earlier? Is it having utility partners? Like, what is it? And if you hate this question, ignore it. <laughs> we could not, not go down. No, it. it's a good question. It's a good question. I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a little bit of, there's roadblocks all along the way. I'd say, you know, policies are one roadblock where there's incentives that uh, incentivize certain technologies and not others that aren't level playing fields. There's, um, you know, capital deployment, there's um, also the scale of infrastructure build takes a while. So, you know, I think all every solar and wind project in the country is battling interconnection queues. We also battle interconnection queues and, and timelines to get our units up and running. And so we can install units, but then it takes a long time for us to be able to turn them on, uh, sometimes depending on what kind of interconnection queue we're in. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of little roadblocks along the way that can when you're building hardware and you're building infrastructure and so the timelines for development can take longer and a lot of folks want to see okay let's get one or two let's see how they run let's get comfortable with that and then we'll start to scale and so when you look at the state of capital for you know, a software company they can move much more quickly than if you're looking at the scale of uh, 
scaling for a hardware company where there's you know steps along the way where you um, see friction because of uh, because of supply chains because of uh, installation permitting or interconnection uh, and so pushing through all of those roadblocks to you know with especially with a new technology where people aren't familiar with it is what takes time and what takes takes the effort for all new technologies and and to your point before you know larger capital wants to deploy at large scale and so when you start to see even even you know the loan program office is looking at a billion dollar investments for for large manufacturing and so when you look at something that doesn't need that kind of capacity or that kind of capital that needs smaller amounts there aren't as many obvious options for how to get that uh, to be able to move quickly another challenge that they may need a small amount of capital but they can make a big impact that's right that's right. Uh, as, as they develop and get to scale, but it just may, may not be the type of technology that's very capital intensive. That's right. And that needs that up front to, to grow. But again, it could it could really be impactful and make a difference. As we talked, it could be that last link to the chain, but it's just going to be you know somewhat overlooked from a financing and, and capital deployment standpoint. Yeah, I'd say generally, I mean, the energy infrastructure folks are generally going to be conservative, which is completely understandable and the right thing to do. No one wants to just put the grid at risk or put energy infrastructure at risk. No one wants to take a risk that the lights are going to go out or that they're not going to be able to provide reliable power. And so you really do, in some cases, there's incentives to move slowly <laughs> to not uh, to not take too many risks there, which is completely, completely reasonable and understandable. And so, but it's at odds with replacing existing fossil infrastructure with something that's cleaner. And so those two things are are competing with each other in terms of how quickly we can we can move. The real silver lining of this though is that with electrification and with this growth is there is a lot of opportunity to build more infrastructure. And so you're not just replacing existing infrastructure, you're also have an opportunity to build out new infrastructure that's clean. And so as we grow our load with the electrification of vehicles, with electrification of buildings, there's a lot of infrastructure to build and, and a lot of that can be done with new technologies and new uh, cleaner options that at the same time that they're building out clean infrastructure, they can also add resiliency, add more redundancy to the grid and add both of those capabilities together. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of build out. It was, it was interesting because I was thinking you know, before to Melissa, when you were talking about, when I asked you about the, the 2050 and, and where we were, I'll admit when, I, when the guidelines or the, the targets were rolled out, I, I laughed and I said, no way. I said it's ridiculous to even think that, but but then I started thinking, well, why wouldn't you do that? Because if you just put 2070 or 2080, guess what people are going to target? 2070, 2080. So it's the progress that that you're measuring along there and trying to see how close you can get to it to benefit people's health, the environment. So why not have aggressive targets, almost whether or not they can be met? Trying to get there shows the progress throughout the transition, and that just benefits us all. You, you definitely won't get there if you don't try. Yeah, I mean, there's two pieces to it. One, um, what is it, shoot for the moon and you might hit the stars or vice versa. I was like a real space nerd growing up. Um, I still am. I'm going to have to go look up the saying. But I, I mean, that the idea is shoot for where you really want to go. You might actually just get there is the first thing I would say. But even if you don't get exactly there at the exact moment you went into and you're a minute or two late, well, you're not an hour or two late. And that's a lot better for human health because I I feel like we can often lose sight of the fact that moving quickly is really difficult, adapting to and managing the impacts if we don't. 
is really difficult. So uh, we're not giving ourselves an easier path by going slower with it, all this. Um, I will say it's funny, I chuckled, David, when you when you said that, because when I first saw some of these targets, and when I first saw the targets in my first set of modeling runs that we were running all the way to net zero by different timeframes, uh, where my mind went was, okay, what does that mean in terms of what I would have to practically do if I was going to do this? And then what does that mean in terms of what I'd have to unstick? And in some places, you know, it's like, oh, actually, we could unlock this pretty quickly. In other places, it goes back to the diversity of technologies we need. Okay, this is a place where that spike in need of production of minerals or that supply chain development, uh, you know, that, oof, that takes my breath away a little bit, what we're talking about with the numbers. So what are my other options? And and this, I think, goes back to the engineer in my heart, which is, you know, okay, given these things, what do I know? What do I not know? How do I solve? And what does that mean? Um, and it's in some cases, yeah, easier than we might think, but still challenging. Um, and in other cases, it just necessitates a diversity of technologies and a diversity of approaches. Absolutely. It's like my kids' homework. You tell them it's due Friday. Guess what? It's going to be due Friday. Tell them it's Monday. It's going to be Monday. So why not make it aggressive <laughs> and get there? <laughs> it takes the time you give it. Oh, goodness. I, uh, I'm now picturing the dog ate my homework excuse, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thanks. Really appreciated the conversation. Um, enjoyed it. Wish we had uh, some more time to go into the nitty gritty of the tech, but another time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. This was really fun. I'm David Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged, out every second Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. If you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy, hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers-Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders, it's everything you need to know in one place. So next Friday from 7 a.m. Eastern Time, join the Energy Gang conversation, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.